We are going to read the scripture, so would you stand with me, please? And if you have your Bible or your phone Bible or whatever kind of Bible you have with you, open it up to Acts chapter 9, and we're going to start reading at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenges that we receive from your word. And God, I pray that each and every heart in this place would accept the challenges that they feel in their spirit today as they hear your message and they hear your word. As they walk out the doors, let it just be imprinted on their hearts and let their lives be changed. Pray you'd bless our pastor as he shares the word this morning and guide us in your truth and in your wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, I hope you've been watching the series, especially those of you with young children. I hope you've been gathering them in and watching the series and then talking about it, looking at scripture, talking about it. It's just a great way to help bring a spiritual discussion into your home and to talk about what the, the, uh, the messages mean. So I, ho- I hope you've been taking advantage of that. Today, as I said and, and watched uh, uh, our, our video on those who have uh, passed away in the last year, I, I found myself just sitting there saying uh, thank you uh, to some people who've been such great, faithful uh, people to our church that we miss. And uh, we know, I, I always tell people when they say, well, we lost them. No, we know right where they're at. You know, we know, know right where to find them. And, uh, and you know, we do that up till, up till the end of April, and, and then we'll next year will be May through uh, April again. 
And so be remembering those families as we go through this uh, holiday, this Memorial Day weekend. And so we just want people to know we love them and, and we miss the ones who've gone before us. Amen. Gary uh, Habermas was a, a young doctoral student at Michigan State University in the 1970s. Uh, he was struggling with his faith. Uh, like, like many young people who grow up in a Christian home, Gary grew up in a Christian home, and then they eventually leave home, they find their faith challenged, and he found his faith challenged. He was definitely rethinking what he believed. In fact, it came to a point uh, that he announced to his mother at one point that he was leaning towards uh, Buddhism. And as he's working towards his doctoral process, he, he wanted to settle this issue. And so he decided to do his doctoral dissertation on the resurrection of Jesus. And he figured that through that process, he would either settle that it wasn't real or settle that it, it was real. He felt that anchoring his faith in the truth about the resurrection would give him peace and confidence that he saw it. And so he approached the chairman of the doctoral committee and uh, they said that, that we, he said it was fine, but he added, uh, don't come back and tell us that the resurrection happened because the Bible tells us so. So Gary's challenge was to demonstrate the reality of this event without exclusively using scripture. He called his method the minimal facts method. He presented 12 historical facts that validated the core events and people surrounding the most crucial event in Christian faith, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The result of his research on the resurrection not only literally saved his Christian faith, but Gary Habermas is now considered one of the world's leading experts on the topic. He's written, many, he's written books on this issue, the latest one, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. He, he debates on college and university campuses and in other settings about the resurrection of Jesus. He teaches around the world and on major universities on the historical evidence around the resurrection of Jesus. Out of these 12 accepted historical facts he put forth in his Research. I want to mention to you just five of them today. And again, these are things that I want you to really capture this, that even the majority of skeptical scholars believe to be true. So uh, here is the first one. Jesus actually lived and was Jewish. This claim is only challenged by skeptics who determined to disbelieve any facts that would point to the validity of Christian faith. Now, it's important to remember, simply Googling something is not equivalent to actual historical research. Are you with me? In contrast, any serious student of history will concede that Jesus really lived. Now, probably the most notable skeptic of, New, of the New Testament today is a man by the name of Dr. Bart Ehrman, a former Christian who rejects the inspiration of Scripture. He's a historian. Dr. Bart Ehrman makes this statement. Jesus existed. 
And those vocal persons who deny it do so not because they have considered the evidence with the dispassionate eye of a historian, but because they have some other agenda that this denial serves. So here is a man who has rejected Christianity as faith, but says very clearly, Jesus lived and walked on this earth, a man named Jesus. Number two, accepted fact, Jesus was executed by crucifixion by Pontius Pilate. Josephus, the first century historian, and other historians of, of, of Roman background of the early second century are eyewitnesses, are both, are both key witnesses of the fact that the, the, uh, beyond testimony of Scripture. So set aside Scripture, we have historians from the first and second century writing about Pontius Pilate crucifying a man named Jesus. These historical references are, are why even skeptics believe that Jesus was crucified. We can establish this as a fact of history, not just a statement of faith in Scripture. Remember, though we are Christians, though we as Christians accept the, the, the testimony of the Scripture as God's inspired word, what we're showing here are basic facts of the gospel are accessible to those who don't share this belief. If they are open to honestly looking at history, they can clearly see that certain critical events happened, two of them being that a man named Jesus lived and a man named Jesus was crucified by Pontius Pilate. Number three, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his female followers three days after his crucifixion. The sudden expansion of Christian faith just after his death on the cross could not have happened if the body of Jesus were still in the tomb. His enemies would have simply produced the corpse and the growing movement would have been over. Instead, Christianity started in Jerusalem, the very place where it would have been easiest to disprove the things the disciples were claiming to be true. Number four, his disciples believed Jesus appeared to them after his death. The followers of Jesus indeed believed Jesus had appeared to them after his crucifixion. Now, skeptics suggest that they were merely hallucinations or visions instead of real bodily appearances. But as some have suggested, visions of people who have died are usually interpreted as seeing a spirit or a ghost of that person, evidence that they had indeed died, not that they were still living. It's also never reported that a hallucination or a ghost would cook breakfast for a group of his friends, as Jesus did. Remember, the idea of the resurrection, of a resurrection, was just as shocking then as it is now. Just like today, people at the time of Jesus believed dead people tend to stay dead. Using accepted historical methods that look for the best explanation to determine what actually happened in the past, we're able to make, the, make decisions about what's 
historical fact and what's historical fiction. The conclusion that Jesus was raised from the dead best explains what happened after the crucifixion, how the the church body grew, how it sprang into life, how the church began to grow, how it spread around the known world. Since the resurrection is the foundation of Christianity, our faith is not the product of blind acceptance but of historical reality. However, one of the key minimal facts I've yet to mention here involves a biblical figure who is the primary focus of the recent AD episode, Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was transformed after claiming to see the risen Jesus. Historians of all types acknowledge that Saul, later known as Paul, was indeed a real person, highly educated, and a religiously influential leader. Even critics concede that Saul did undergo a dramatic transformation and became a follower of Christ. He would eventually write the majority of letters to the young Christian churches, such as Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians, which are included in the New Testament. Now, with this thought of a transformed life, a man who was opposed to Christianity, trying to stamp out Christianity in mind, with this firmly in mind, we want to focus some attention this morning on this man, Saul, someone who history tells us was very real and deeply important to the advancement of the gospel. As the AD series has shown dramatically, Paul was no friend of the Christian community. In today's context, he'd be seen as a radical terrorist who would stop at nothing to destroy this new religion. Because of his prominence in the New Testament as well as in the TV series, we want to examine a little bit of the impact of Paul's pivotal encounter with the risen Christ. See, Saul stands out as history's most famous convert to the Christian faith. His encounter with Christ and its subsequent impact of his life deserves a closer look as we search for parallels that apply to us today. So let's look at a couple. Number one, Saul's encounter with Christ gave him a new life mission. This event may be one of the most dramatic encounters with God in all Scripture. It could be considered the New Testament parallel to Moses encountering God at the burning bush in the Old Testament. Moses encountered God as a consuming fire. Paul experienced him as a blinding light. Saul's encounter is also the source of the expression, seeing the light, and thus changing one's ways. The end result of both of these moments was that these men was these men being commissioned by God to accomplish his purpose, changing from what they were doing to what God would have them to do. For Moses, the call was to lead the people out of physical bondage and slavery. Paul's mission 
was to proclaim Christ's message of deliverance from spiritual bondage and oppression. A common theme runs through the stories of those who encounter Christ in any way. They find themselves divinely redirected. Paul's belief that Christ had been raised from the dead led him to spark a mass movement that caused multitudes to accept the gospel and put their faith in Jesus. And this church, right here, is filled with people who found their God-given purpose and destiny when they came to know Christ. This is one of the things that happens to a person who meets Jesus. Their life begins to move a new direction, a new purpose, a new revelation for why they exist. Number two, Saul's encounter with Christ changed his character. Meeting Christ on the Damascus Road not only changed the course of Saul's life, but it changed how he saw life and how he acted in life. He didn't remain the same guy. Before Damascus, Saul was, was, was indeed religiously zealous, yet his heart was filled with anger, resentment, and even murder. In our world today, in our world at this time, we can see this trait in people who think they're doing God's work by harassing and harming others in the name of God. We see it on the news. However, however, after Saul's encounter with Christ, he became just the opposite, teaching others that as the Lord's servants, we must be, as he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, we must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of truth. At one moment, Paul, Saul is breathing out murderous threats against those who oppose him. But after his encounter with Christ, his character towards those who oppose him changes. Instead of resorting to torture and persecution to get others to change their beliefs, Paul would indeed would instead pray and preach and persuade them by the force of his arguments, depending on the Holy Spirit to move and convict them and to reveal the truth to them, even to the point of being tortured and persecuted himself for the name of Jesus. There's no greater way to state this change uh, of character than the statement Paul later wrote to the Corinthians when he says to them, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, and the new is here. One of the greatest evidences for Christian faith is, a, is the collection of stories or accounts of people who were radically transformed and are now trophies of the grace of Christ. Many of you are those trophies. Many of us are those trophies. This is why we tell you and talk to you about sharing your faith with others, not as an argument, 
but to share your story. To sit with your friends, to sit with your neighbors, to sit with your family and say, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me and now watch my life and see if it's true. It's why we tell you, set that appointment and have the spiritual talk and then let the Holy Spirit do the rest. We don't argue people into the kingdom. We live a life that lets the Spirit beckon them into the kingdom because Christ changes our lives. I want to challenge you today, friend. Love people and share your story of how Christ has changed your life. Number three, Saul's encounter with Christ affected his relationships. It will affect your relationships. It'll change things in your life when you accept Christ in your life. Encountering Christ can cause relationships to dramatically shift. Paul's companions were baffled by his sudden turnaround from being a Christ hater to being a Christ follower. Some even sought to kill him to minimize the collateral damage of his defection. Yet this encounter also gave Paul a new set of friends. Those who were completely different in culture and ethnicity. Similarly, Christ gives us the power to love all people. To break down all the prejudices of our life. It's one of the first things God begins to work on inside of us is how we see others and how we treat others regardless of their skin color or their culture. Saul would become an apostle to the Gentiles, destroying ethnic barriers that were centuries old and deeply ingrained. Today, in a world still divided racially and ethnically, Christ calls and offers the hope of true reconciliation and true relationship when he plants his love inside of us for all people from every nation from all cultures, that instead of being offended, instead of being scared, instead of being prejudiced, we become a people filled with love. That's the work of Christ in us. Saul's encounter with Christ, number four, made him willing to suffer and sacrifice for the sake of his name. From the very start of his new Christian life, Saul was told the price he would have to pay to follow Jesus. The man sent to help him, Ananias, could have said it something like this. Saul, I've got good news and bad news for you today. The good news is that Jesus told me that you, have been a, you are a chosen instrument of his. The bad news is you're going to suffer a lot for it. Now, that message doesn't sound much like a lot of popular teaching that goes on in our country today that satisfies our itching ears, that promises a life of all blessing and ease and simplicity of following Jesus without mentioning the cost of being a disciple in a fallen world. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, considered one of the most authoritative sources on discipleship, the German evangelist Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, when Christ calls a man, 
he bids him come and die. He knows how empty, how unsatisfying this world is. And he calls us to be healers and teachers and preachers of the truth in a fallen world. And he knows there'll be resistance. And the question I want to really pose to the men in this room today, are you at a point where you're willing to sacrifice? Joyfully face sacrifices to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be his man in his place at his time at this hour these words certainly mirror those of Jesus as he consistently told his disciples that they would have to pick up their own cross and follow him it has been said many times Christianity is a cross not a crutch it's a place where we come And we believe so intently on the message that all men are bound for an eternity someplace. That we cannot live with the fact of being silent while people all around us go to hell. That we must give of ourselves and give of our life to make a difference. That's the change Christ makes in us. He changes us from a people who look inward to what we do to satisfy us to a people who look outward and say, how do we minister and care for others? Number five, Saul's encounter with Christ caused him to ground his faith in the truth of Scripture, not just personal experience. Just three years after his encounter, Saul would personally visit Peter and James and verify the message of the gospel. Eventually, he would talk to John and the other apostles as well as those who were eyewitnesses. He would write to the Corinthians the great gospel creed which he received from the eyewitnesses and that he spoke to in 1 Corinthians 15 and which historians say would have been constructed no more than two to three years after the resurrection. These statements contained in the passage emphasize that Christ died, that Christ rose again according to the scriptures. There is no other encounter like Saul's recorded in the New Testament. The impact of his preaching and his work sparked the explosive growth of the Christian church. And you've got to ask yourself why. Why did this man who opposed the gospel, tried to put the gospel down, suddenly become the chief advocate of the gospel to his own loss and his own detriment. Ultimately, because they witnessed and believed these certain undeniable events, the believers were willing to lay down their lives. History tells us that the majority of the original disciples were actually put to death rather than denying Jesus had been risen, been raised from the grave. Now, friends, it's one thing to give your life for something that you believe to be true. It's another thing to die for something that you know is a lie. The the original disciples would have known firsthand whether or not Jesus was really alive. 
And to them, it was an undeniable truth. We don't need to see the same dramatic experience Christ uh, with Christ that Saul had to make a, dramatic, make a dramatic impact for Christ in our lives. As you embe- embrace the key truths, understand the facts and the testimonies of those who've gone before us, and allow God to ground your faith as he, as he established Saul's and put yourself in, in, a, in a place in life to submit to him, your life will begin to be changed. Saul was able to change the world because he not only knew that the, what the historical facts regarding Jesus were true, but he also knew what they meant. This is where we now turn to God's word for real answers. Jesus lived the life of perfect obedience to God's law. He was indeed a man, not some legend or myth, borrowed from Greeks or Romans. He was Jewish. His life and works were rooted in historical Judaism, not Greek mythology or Egyptian legends. Jesus came to fulfill what the prophets had spoken. But it was his perfect life of obedience to God that pointed to him being the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Ultimately, he lived his life as we should, as we should live by keeping God's commandments, and he became the holy sacrifice for our sins that justice required. Jesus paid the penalty for the sin of the world. Even though history tells us that he died, it can't really explain why. For that, we must look to Scripture. Beyond being a threat to Rome, his words were considered blasphemous by the religious establishment. By receiving it to himself, by by revealing himself to be the Son of God, Jesus made a claim to being divine. God indeed came down to man in Jesus Christ. His death fulfilled the words of Isaiah the prophet spoken more than 600 years before. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That's why we can say that Christ died the death that we should have died in our place so that we could have peace with God. Jesus' resurrection proved he indeed was the Son of God. The empty tomb and the appearances of Christ after his resurrection demonstrate that he was indeed raised from the dead. His resurrection demonstrates conclusively that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God, that his words are indeed true, and that our sins can be forgiven. I once heard heard it stated this way about the, the work of Christ on the cross. Christ wrote a check for our forgiveness in his blood on the cross. And at the resurrection, the check cleared. And he was proven to be the son of God. Putting these truths together, they form the essence of the gospel, which means good news. It can be summarized this way. God became man in Jesus Christ. 
He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died in our place. Three days later, he rose from the dead, proving he was the Son of God and now offers salvation to everyone who repents and believes in him. I want to challenge you today to look over this message, to talk about it in C2 groups, to, to get it embedded in your knowledge and your understanding enough so that when some skeptic comes around, you can look and say, let me tell you what the truth is. Let me tell you what I know. Let me tell you how things really have happened. See, the question is this. The skeptics know these things are historically true. Why don't they believe? Obviously, this inquiry reveals one of the mysterious and misunderstood aspects of our, of our existence. Doubt. In the court of law, the burden of truth is beyond a reasonable doubt, not a possible doubt, a reasonable doubt. Skeptics say things like, it isn't possible, isn't it possible that his disciples stole his body and then went out to preach he had been resurrected? Well, yes, that's possible, but it's not reasonable. To make a rational, re- reasonable decision, we don't really need 100% certainty about any, anything. In the same way, God has given us enough evidence to believe. Why would they do that and then die for it? It's not a reasonable step. For Gary Habernoff struggles so much with doubt, he has, he has this deep compassion for those who have similar struggles with doubt. He describes three kinds of doubt. Factual doubt, emotional doubt, volitional doubt. If your issue is factual doubt, doubting these things, uh, that, that these are true and, and are facts of history, then maybe this message will go a long way in helping you to believe. Yet many can know and the correct facts and still not believe. The issue could be emotional doubt, which points to an experience that's left a person in a place where they can't overcome the emotional hurdles of a bad religious experience, a failed relationship with someone who claimed to be a Christian, or simply a fear of not being able to follow Christ and keep his commands. We just want you to know, if that's your issue, and you've been disappointed by people, so have we. We've learned not to look at people. We've learned to look to the Son of God. And he'll give you help in every issue of your life. Finally, it could come down to volitional doubt, which, is an, which in essence is an act of your will. Every person has a choice. God gave the human race the privilege. He gave no other creature the power to make real choices. Moses spoke to the people of Israel and declared God's challenge. This day I call the heavens and earth as witness against you that have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. As Saul, who would later became known as the Apostle Paul said, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To this very day, you have an awesome opportunity to take a step of faith, not a blind step, but, whether, but, but rather one with spiritual sight, given the evidence that the tomb of Jesus is empty and that he indeed has been raised from the dead. 
because Christ has been raised, you and I can be raised into new life just like Saul. And we can possess a faith that is undeniable. You believe that? Give the Lord a clap offering today. Yeah, let's stand and give him a Yes, let's stand together. Father, as you look down upon our lives today, I pray for believers today that this message would just shore up their faith. Just make it so solid that, Father, it would be unshakable. I pray that you'd put tools through this message in our hand that when we face the skeptics of this world that the enemy is blinded and lied to and deceived, that we would have the words to say under the anointing of your spirit to share our story and to answer their questions. Help us, Lord, to be that. And Father, I pray today, as men and women have come in this door that need to take a step of faith, receive your son into their life, that right now, in this very moment, they would do that very thing by the power of your Holy Spirit. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. As every head bowed, every eye closed. I just want to ask you today one question. Do you need to accept Christ into your life? Do you need to recognize who he is, that he is the Son of God, and that he paid the price on Calvary for your sin, for my sin? And if we come to him right there and accept that work, we can be born again and have new life in Christ Jesus. Do you need to make that step today? Have you felt the twin and the, 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 the twins of the Spirit in your life saying today? Follow the Son today. If that's you, just, I just want you to raise your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me right here, right now, this morning. Just raise it high. God bless you. See that hand? God bless you. Anybody else today? You'll raise your hand and say, pray for me. Pray for me. Anyone else today? Look across this main floor, across the balcony today. Let's all pray this prayer together. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. And I ask you, to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I receive Jesus as my Lord and as my Savior. And I ask you to help me to live for him who died for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now here's what I want to do today. Pastor Paul, where, where is Pastor Paul at? He disappeared on me today. Oh, come on down here, Pastor Paul. I see you. Thank you. He's going to stand right down here. If you're one of the folks who raised your hand today, or if you're one of the folks, if you needed to and you didn't, before you leave today, Paul's going to be standing right here. Stand right there, Paul. I'm directed right, right there so they can see that bright, wonderful, colorful shirt that you have on today. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, if you're one who raised your hand before you leave, 
before you leave, this, look, this is an important thing. Hear me. I don't want to embarrass you. I don't want to do anything to embarrass you. That's not what Christ is about. Christ wants to embrace you. We want to embrace you, help you walk in it. If you have a question about faith or if you raised your hand, before you leave, come down here and see Pastor Paul. He's going to probably walk you over to the prayer room for just a couple minutes, answer your questions, make sure we can help you in your walk with Christ. This is an important step for you to take. This is a really important step. Even if you've asked Christ in your life the last couple weeks and you haven't done this, come down and do it today. Paul's going to stand here for just a couple minutes. He's a really nice guy. We all love Pastor Paul. So come down and see him. He, he is a great man, great man of God, and he'll be a blessing to you. So, do you love Jesus today? Amen. I am so glad that my faith, God gives me enough evidence that my faith isn't just built on a shadow. It's built on truth. And the things that God can do in my life to change me are established so clearly for me and for you. Amen? It's been great having you with us on this holiday weekend. Yeah, give the Lord praise. Praise God for his mercy. God bless you. Grace and peace.